You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This week, a woman driving to work hit and killed a mountain lion on I-70 near Glenwood Springs. And last week, a mountain lion got inside a home in Boulder and killed a house cat. Are interactions like these on the rise? A study from Colorado State University and Colorado Parks and Wildlife provides new insight. Researchers found that while mountain lions are generally fearful of and avoid humans, their stomachs sometimes speak louder. David Barron is a journalist formerly with NPR and author of The Beast in the Garden, the true story of a predator's deadly return to suburban America. He joins us for some perspective. Hi, David. Hello, Ryan. Mountain lion encounters are certainly not new, uh, but do you think big cats are starting to lose their fear of people as we move further and further into their natural environments? Well, they're certainly getting used to living with people. And as that study you mentioned uh, from uh, Parks and Wildlife found that they, you know, mountain lions, if they're hungry, um, they will venture into areas where homes are because uh, where homes are, there's actually more prey. And I know this is counterintuitive, but in more suburban areas where we irrigate gardens and the deer come in to eat our gardens and we have pets out back, uh, there's actually more food for lions to eat. And so if a lion gets hungry, it'll come into our backyards, have success hunting, and then you're basically encouraging the lions to come back into human areas. Oh, interesting. So we're luring them with all the trappings of suburbia. I guess to distinguish this from bears, which are so often interested in our trash, that's not the case with mountain lions? Precisely. It's the same phenomenon, but it's different types of food because uh, a mountain lion is what's called an obligate carnivore. It only eats meat. So a mountain lion is not interested in your trash. Oh. It's not interested in seed from your bird feeder. That's, those are both uh, issues with bears. But a mountain lion, if it finds a fox in your yard or a dog in your yard or a deer in your yard, uh, it may come in to hunt. All right. Should we be building our suburbs differently? Well, we need to be uh, we need to be behaving differently. We need to act uh, responsibly if we're going to live in mountain lion country, and that means uh, not doing things that lure the lions in. And so, first of all, it definitely means if if you've got deer in your yard, you could very well wake up one day and see an, a lion in your yard. Now, I know that often the deer come uninvited, but if you're doing anything to invite the deer, like feeding the deer, or if you have a water feature out back that the deer like to drink from, you're essentially luring lions in. Um, but the, the biggest thing we have a control over uh, is our pets. And if you, you know, if you leave your house cat, house cat out, if you put your dog outside, particularly at night, it's obviously that could be very dangerous for your pet. And it's also not good for the lion, because if the lion starts feeding on pets, that's probably a lion that's going to be targeted by uh, authorities as one to be, frankly, removed. Do you think there are people living in mountain lion country, as you say, who just don't realize it? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, Colorado, we're having new people move in constantly, uh, particularly along the Front Range. And uh, folks are moving in from parts of the country where they don't live with large predators, particularly large cats. Uh, but if you live uh, basically, and frankly, the entire state of Colorado is mountain lion country. They're more likely to be found in the mountains than on the plains, but they will go on the plains as well. But if you're uh, essentially, if you're in Evergreen or Boulder or Golden or Colorado Springs or out on the western slope, that is solidly mountain lion country. And uh, so you need to, again, 
be careful that you're not creating bad behavior on the part of the lions and you're doing things to protect yourself, protect your kids, protect your pets. Let's get a little bit more precise about mountain lion country. So it sounds like sounds like one indicator is if I see deer, I'm probably in mountain Absolutely. lion country. But, you know, I think of golden as actually a pretty, well, a mix of rural and intensely urban. So how urban should I think of mountain lion country as? Well, so you, well, first of all, you used a good word there, which is mix, because it's that mix of wild and urban that causes the conflict, right? So if we've got, if we have open space right up against dense development, you've created this edge where people and wild animals overlap. And so right along the edge is where you're most likely to have the, the conflict. But in Boulder, where I live, we've got mountain lions that'll come, I mean, all the way through town. They're much less likely to be found down on the Pearl Street Mall, but they, you know, they will come deep into town. In Denver, I would say if I lived in Lodo, I wouldn't think about it. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but there was a mountain lion that found its way to downtown Chicago uh, several years ago. That lion wandered in probably from South Dakota. So they can wander a long way and they can find themselves into uh, a, a densely urban environment. Is this a question of regulation, of cities policing, you know, how I am placing my pets, being mindful of my pets, for instance? I think that would be hard to do. I mean, clearly that's being done when it comes to, to garbage and bears. And that's, you know, that's kind of easier to, I think, to regulate. You can go out on trash day and see that someone is leaving their trash unsecured in a bin that, you know, can't withstand an attack from a bear. It's harder with when it comes to mountain lions. Um, And the other thing with mountain lions is that, uh, you know, for the most part, you won't see them. They are so good at hiding. Uh, You know, they are ambush predators. They're stalkers. Uh, they could be around and you just don't know it. It's not like the bears that come in and they, you know, they, the trash is, is just left strewn everywhere. You won't know except that, oh, there have been several cats missing in the neighborhood recently. Well, that's positively terrifying. Thank you for that. <laughs> I, it also strikes me as impossible to prepare for then. Is there something I should be mindful of if I'm walking about? Yeah, well, that's a good question. So, uh, So first of all, to put this all into context... You know, mountain lion attacks on people are extraordinarily rare. Mm. They do happen, and they can be serious. And my book, The Beast in the Garden, is about Colorado's first fatal mountain lion attack, and that was in 1991 when 18-year-old Scott Lancaster was jogging behind Clear Creek High School in Idaho Springs on a just a regular day, and he was attacked and killed by a mountain lion. And when that lion was found, I mean, his body was found, the lion was found, it was not a starving lion. It was not a sick lion. It was a perfectly healthy mountain lion that on that day made a decision to hunt a human instead of a deer. Again, that's really, really rare, but it happens. And so uh, I, what my advice is, first of all, when I go hiking, and I love to go hiking, I just don't go hiking alone. Now, plenty of people do They come home perfectly safe at the end of the day. But if you were to encounter a lion, you are much less likely to to have a dangerous encounter if you're with even one other person. And in the very unusual uh, circumstance that you're attacked, if there's someone else there to come to your rescue, to clobber the lion with a rock or a log, and people have done this, the lion will give up. Because mountain lions, uh, they, they are solitary predators. Their mode of living is to kill quickly. Uh, not usually a person, but a deer. 
they want to they they come from behind. They kill the deer without the deer even knowing it. Uh, but if the deer puts up a fight, the lion will back off because the lion can't afford to be injured. It's not like a wolf that lives in a pack. If a lion gets injured, it's gone. It it can't hunt anymore. So lions will want to use the element of surprise. Uh, and so if you're with someone else and God forbid you should be attacked, uh, that other person can come to your rescue. And if you're alone and you're attacked, uh, do everything you can to fight back. You don't play dead. You you fight for your life. I think of the June 2016 case, a five-year-old boy in Aspen was attacked by a mountain lion while playing in the backyard, and the mother pried the boy's head out of the cat's mouth. Um, David, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. David Barron, author of The Beast in the Garden, he spoke to us about learning to live with mountain lions. Colorado's expensive housing market and its aging population can make for a difficult situation. It's why 78-year-old Doris Peterson decided to rent out a room in her Federal Heights home. The primary reason was, of course, additional income. I am uh, retired and living on a minimum income from Social Security. But the secondary reason would have been just to have someone in my home to share my home with the increased security of having someone else here. Why don't we explore this now in our series, The Disruptors, about entrepreneurship in Colorado. A Colorado company called Silvernest is helping seniors stay in their homes longer by connecting them with roommates. And this really speaks to some broader issues. We have the CEO of Silvernest with us. That's Wendy Burkhart. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And Ben Moultrie serves on the AARP Colorado Executive Council with more perspective. Hi, Ben. Hi. Nice to see you. By 2035, one in three American households will be headed by someone older than 65. I I find that a stunning statistic. When you looked at the demographics, I wonder, Wendy, what made you think there was an opportunity for a business? Well, I think that um, when you look at the macro trends, really across the United States right now, the statistic that you just provided was really the impetus for us taking a look at new solutions in the aging um, in the aging market. So I think when you consider the fact that we are living longer than ever before, when you also then look at the fact that unfortunately many folks are not prepared well in their retirement income to actually be able to live quite as long as we are, um, and then you look at the expenses related to aging, I think all of that added up to us exploring a new solution. The idea that all of that can start to crowd out the money you have to pay for your home. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and yet we know that people want to stay in their homes as long as possible, sometimes even beyond the point that it's healthy. Well, I think if there's a study by AARP that will um, clearly say that 90% of the population wants to stay in their home as long as possible. Okay. Uh, So that wasn't just a supposition on my part or a reflection of my own parents, (laughs) for that matter. (laughs) Then we have this aging population in Colorado, and at the same time, the economy is booming. Unemployment is at 2.7%. How does that affect older people who want to stay in their homes, particularly in places where it's getting more expensive to do so? Sure. Um, Certainly, the um, strong economy 
we have here uh, has the effect, too, of really driving up the cost of homes, uh, property cost. And so we also then have uh, certainly um, when you reach kind of a certain point in your life, uh, you may be retired or near retirement. And so, uh, you know, the increasing cost of housing um, uh, extends beyond basically your growth in income. So uh, it does place pressure on people uh, in terms of their ability to stay in their homes. And even if you own your home outright, there's still the taxes to pay and those are increasing commensurately. Exactly right. I want to say that the state does offer help to seniors squeezed by property taxes. It's called the homestead exemption. And it reduces those taxes for seniors who've been in their primary residences for more than 10 years. Uh, I suppose that's helping seniors uh, be able to pay for aging in place, as they say. Well, that's what we would hope. Um, But I think the harsh truth is, you know, if we look at this next generation of aging, unfortunately, we have about 50 million people right now that are over the age of 50 across the United States that have less than $50,000 saved for their retirement. And when you think about moving into a state of fixed income, and then you look at that particular condition, um, and imagine that you might live 20 years past your retirement. Okay, I was just going to ask you how long (laughs) retirement is getting these days. So it could be two decades. It could certainly be. How does this differ from urban and rural areas, Ben? Well, uh, you know, actually, that's a great question. Um, I think at the sort of um, uh, very similar pressures are placed because of although the economic structures may be a little bit different, uh, you have very similar pressures. Uh, the the other aspect of uh, differences is um, the uh, extent of services that are available. Uh, in the rural, more rural areas, um, tend to be more sparse as well, and homes are more isolated, and so uh, the, the safety net is perhaps not as close at hand. Exactly right. And I wonder if that makes it harder to stay in a home in a rural area if you're just disconnected from the kinds of support you might need. Uh, it does. Okay. Well, let's get to this idea of pairing seniors with roommates. Uh, and, you know, having, as we heard earlier from Doris, having someone not only defray the costs, but also just there as support. Why wouldn't I just turn to Craigslist for that, Wendy? Well, we would hope you would not. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> you know, I think that what we've worked really hard to do is build a platform that does uh, the heavy lifting for folks to consider feeling secure in making this decision. I think, you know, the Craigslist certainly has had a large population of folks over the age of 50 renting out rooms for a long time. Um, but the work is really on the homeowner then to really be able to vet individuals, to make sure that they understand who they're dealing with, that they are not being taken advantage of through a scam. Um, we've built a platform that first and foremost matches individuals based on compatibility and their preferences in living together. Like what? Well, you know, some people are particular about pets. They might be particular about smoking, um, lifestyle questions, questions about the type of home that you want to live in. Those are the things that people are first and foremost concerned about. Do you guys do a background check? What about the safety aspect of this? We do. Yeah. So we employ a full five-point background check, meaning we check national and 
state-level criminal and uh, misdemeanor records. And we also look at a five-year eviction history on the individuals. I think of the senior population as particularly vulnerable to fraud, Ben. I think you've probably seen instances of that in your connection to the AARP. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, actually, that is a huge problem. And that's why uh, sort of the service that uh, Wendy's platform offers in terms of black background checks is is so important. I want to say that there are all kinds of approaches out there. I think of a nonprofit called Sunshine Home Share, which does something similar to Silver Nest. There are villages for seniors. What do you see as some of the most promising emerging solutions, Ben? Actually, I think they're all important. Um, they will have their uh, their places. For example, let's talk the village concept. Uh, I think that uh, likely works best in a more densely populated area. We were talking about rural communities before. Yeah. And the idea that there's just the people around to offer that kind of exactly right of nets, okay, in closer community. Is there an expectation on the roommates that you pair with seniors that they will become caregivers? No, no, typically not. Now, what we do see is about 25 percent of the homeowners actually indicate that they're willing to take a reduced rent in exchange for some assistance around the home. Like what? Well, it's typically things like um, helping out with the home uh, home care. So house cleaning, lawn maintenance, um, perhaps light transportation, typically not caregiving. I think that moves into a different um, a different consideration set. It strikes me that this helps not just the senior, but in another dimension of the housing market in Colorado, more people are getting roommates. Well, so this helps the roommate as well. Absolutely. We, um, we're proud to say that last year, the folks on our platform collectively that used the platform recognized about $18 million worth of financial benefit. Um, and eight and a half million of that was recognized by the renter who had a savings. So if you look at a typical one-bedroom apartment in Colorado right now, it's yeah. about $1,400. For a one-bedroom? <laughs> and the average cost of a room is about seven fifty in Colorado. So that's a pretty significant annual savings for someone. But is the roommate taking on at least some liability or – and I don't mean necessarily legally, but almost emotionally uh, – if something happens to the senior while they're in the home? Well, we're fortunate in the fact that the majority of our participants really are – the homeowners are typically between the ages of 60 and 75, 80 kind of at the high end. We've had as old as 101, which has been great. Okay, um, But I think what that suggests is that the homeowner still continues to be pretty independent in their home. And it's less about having a caregiving dependency and more about they're doing this because they're looking for supplemental income or just perhaps companionship at a simple level. Ben, do you have concerns, though, that some of these services might keep people in their homes longer than they should be? Uh, actually, that's uh, that's an absolutely great question. Um, I, I occasionally I, have one or two of them. Hopefully. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, but I, I think there is a flip side to that too. Uh, it may enable people to get out of their home sooner uh, simply because oh. that they're able to downsize on the basis of of home sharing. Say more about that. I'm not quite clear on on how this would achieve the the opposite. Uh, suppose that a homeowner um, is not uh, has the economic means, okay, but uh, they have a large home. 
that is more than they uh, care to um, um, care for. But what they're looking for is really a compatible relationship or companionship. They have the latitude to go into this home sharing space uh, and find someone compatible who shares their interest uh, without the obligation of having a home. So might uh, a senior be more apt to choose uh, a home that's more appropriate for them if they think, gosh, I could find someone to live here with me? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I see. Is this national? It is national. Where is your reach? Where do you see the company going? Well, um, you know, I always joke and say world domination. World, so okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the rapid growth of the aging population is certainly not um, isolated just to the United States. And um, we're seeing sort of a worldwide uh, ra- rapid level of growth in aging. So we are, um, we're proud to say that we are national. We've had users all across the country. And um, our strongest markets to date are right here in Colorado and then also in Southern California. Do they Um, tend to be more urban or rural? um, Currently, it's a little bit more urban. And I think a lot of that is based on economic condition and the cost of housing in those areas. And the need, thus. Absolutely. Well, thanks to both of you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We heard from Wendy Burkhardt, CEO of Silver Nest, a Denver company apparently set on world domination that matches seniors with roommates. (laughs) Ben Moultrie serves on the AARP Colorado Executive Council, and they joined us for Disruptors, our series about entrepreneurship in Colorado. This is CPR News. If you haven't heard of the company VF, you're not alone, but you're likely to know some of its brands like the North Face, Smart Wool, Jansport, Vans. This week, VF announced it's moving its headquarters to Denver. Governor John Hickenlooper told us that the company is valued at more than $30 billion. This is going to be the largest market value company in terms of an operating company that we have in Colorado. That's a big deal. The move is expected to bring 800 jobs to Colorado starting next year. In exchange, the company got $27 million in tax incentives. Not everyone's celebrating. Steamboat Springs, where Smartwool is based now, is braced for job losses. We wanted to learn more about VF Corp., so we asked Wall Street Journal reporter Suzanne Kapner to join us. She covers business, finance, and fashion. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, thanks for having me. How would you describe VF Corporation today? Could you just give us a sense for it? They are a conglomeration of brands ranging from um, everything from, as you mentioned, Timberlin and North Face to um, Lee and Wrangler Jeans, although they are spinning off their jeans division. Um, and the interesting thing about the company is that over the years, they have um, changed their portfolio. They call it active management. And they're always buying and selling companies. Last year, they sold Nautica. This year, they bought Dickies, the workwear brand. They're constantly moving in and out of these brands depending on how they perform. Do they see themselves as an outdoors company? There are two big areas of focus, are outdoors and activewear. That's where they want to continue to grow and continue to acquire brands. Okay. I'm fascinated they're spinning off jeans. Maybe they don't see a future for jeans? What's happening? 
Well, the the big jeans brands that they own, Lee and Wrangler, are really not growing very much. I mean, they're sold in mass market chains and department stores. And um, unlike, you know, North Face and Vans, which are growing, you know, single double digits a year, that market is not growing at all. So that's why they want to get rid of it. Okay, here's my burning question. What the heck does VF stand for? So the company started in the late 1800s as a manufacturer of women's lingerie, and their big brand at the time was Vanity Fair, and that's where the name comes from. They changed it in the 1960s. They shortened it to VF, but that's the origin of the name. Vanity Fair. Not not the magazine, though. Not the magazine, the lingerie brand. Okay. The company's headquarters is now in Greensboro, North Carolina. I think Portland, Oregon was also in the running for the relocation. Uh, learned that speaking to the governor this week. Why the move west? You know, I can't speak to why they chose Denver, but... Um, you know, the interesting thing about the company is that although they own all these brands, they they don't centralize them typically. In the past, you know, um, North Face is based in California. Vans is based in California. Timberland is based in New Hampshire. One of the things that's made them successful is they buy these companies. They keep them where they're located. They keep a lot of times the founders or the pe- the managers who have made those brands successful. They keep them in place. And then they put the back end, the sourcing, the production on this common platform where they can get a lot of economies of scale. And that's been like a recipe uh, for success for them. But they are deviating a bit from that now where yeah. they're moving North Face and some of these other brands to Denver. And um, so it is a bit of a departure for them. But if it was working for them, why change course? You know, I haven't spoken to them directly about this, but um, it does seem to make sense. Uh, North Face is going to be based. They're going to have um, they have a facility that sort of tests new um, materials and and to have some of those, you know, um, operations based um, near each other. There could be some benefit to that. All right. Uh, indeed, it means the North Face picks up from the San Francisco Bay Area to Denver. Do you, th- do you see risks in this plan? There are risks because, um, you know, you, there's no guarantee that everybody is going to move and you could end up losing some of your top people. And especially when you have a consumer brand that has a very strong identity, you know, a lot of that, there, there's a culture there that can be, you know, uh, upended when you when you move the company. So, yes, there are definitely risks. And certainly the folks in Steamboat concerned in that regard as it relates to SmartWool. I'll say that the company... Uh, has mentioned its decision to move to Denver is more than just about the incentives. Quoting here, this is a lot of business speak. You're you're likely to recognize this, Suzanne, (laughs) given uh, your area of coverage. Locating these brands at the base of the Rocky Mountains will enable us to accelerate innovation, unlock collaboration across brands and functions, attract and retain talent, and connect with consumers. Uh, I suppose... Speaking there to this idea that there are some efficiencies that can be had, I guess we'll see how that pans out as this company moves west. Thanks so much for your perspective. Thanks for having me. Suzanne Kapner covers business, finance, and fashion for The Wall Street Journal. We talked about VF Corporation, which indeed owns brands like the North Face and Smart Wool. The company will move its headquarters to Denver starting in 2019. Our next story begins with Rube Goldberg machines, you know, where one action triggers another, triggers another. (laughs) 
My guest sees these contraptions as a metaphor for the complexities of government budgeting. Evan Weissman is the founder of Warm Cookies of the Revolution. It's a Denver nonprofit focused on civic health, getting people engaged in this republic. His latest project, which involves these Rube Goldberg setups, is called This Machine Has a Soul. Evan, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk budgets. Let's talk budgets. <laughs> Get <Wow>. excited. <laughs> that makes me want to tune in. Thanks for that. At the heart of this project, indeed, is something called participatory budgeting. This is why you want to stay with us. Explain briefly what participatory budgeting is. It sounds like I might have a role, not just lawmakers. Yeah, exactly. So stay with me, listeners. It's not too much. Participatory budgeting is essentially um, neighborhoods deciding the city budget. So you get a portion of the city budget and you get to decide where that money goes. A portion of it. You're not deciding the direction for the whole thing. Not as of yet where it's been tried. Um, there, I don't know of anywhere that the entire budget is. Um, I believe where it started in Brazil, they do – I think they're up to um, maybe – maybe 50% of the budget? 50%. I think I, you'd have to check me on that. But, but. The, the fundamental idea here is self-determination, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Um, the The idea being that uh, those sort of most affected by, by decisions should have a, a say in them. I understand that the I-70 expansion through Denver was a big inspiration for this whole project. Fill us in on that. Okay. And this will be the tie with the Rube Goldberg machines probably. Yes. Um, when talking with a lot of folks there who have been asked for their input for a long time, 15 years really, um, come to a meeting, we want your input. And for a lot of people, uh, they gave their input and they gave their input and they gave their input and it seemed like, well, it's not changing anything. And so people become rightfully cynical about the process. Um, and what what you see is that there's a real distance between having input on something or being asked for it and having decision-making power, which is what participatory budgeting is. Um, and so specifically, uh, folks who are being affected, uh, displaced, and uh, uh, otherwise affected by the I-70 expansion and the other um, development going around there, they... Um, There's a whole transformation going oh, yeah. on in that part of, of North Denver. It's it's pretty giant. And um, there's people that I'm really close to who are around there and were affected by it originally when the highway came in and have been affected... Um, and are being affected by it now. But we are a representative democracy. We instill the power in our elected representatives to make those budgetary decisions. You're turning that on its head if you're giving people direct power over the purse strings, aren't you? Uh, s- sort of. Um, but I think in a in a way that uh, it's, it's a further invention of uh, our democratic process. And because it's at a local level, um, it, it makes more, it makes sense. Um, Everyone that's still in, that has been involved in the process in a representative way is still involved. All this is doing is adding more people who can be involved to it. And that's why I think it's had such success and is all over the world. There are examples in the United States of this? Um, I think there's over a thousand. Okay. Yeah. So you've been working on this project for about two years. It has involved young people teaching them about ways that governments budget. And this is indeed where the Rube Goldberg (laughs) machines really come in. Here, Denver rapper and spoken word artist Molina Speaks talks to students. If you had, let's say, a million dollars to put towards the construction of something, it could be anything, what what would you want better place? Houses for your people. I like this man. He's a good thinker. He's a good thinker. Feeding the homeless. Okay, we got we got the houses. We got the food. Okay, 
Okay, the students ultimately decide to feed the homeless. Molina Speaks asks the student who proposed that idea to put a coin into a Rube Goldberg device called the Past Machine. The end result, the machine prints a slip of paper thanking the student for his idea, signed management. Then another Rube Goldberg device called the Future Machine helps the students move their idea forward. When you're doing organizing work, you're trying to come up with the money. You know, it's like a puzzle. You got to figure out all these things and, uh, you know, just treat this whole thing like a puzzle. Okay, you're trying to make things happen. You need the money. You need the power. We get the money. We get the power. We make the things happen, not just for ourselves, but for the people. This machine requires the students to work together and represents the participatory budgeting process. And these machines were designed by local artists. How did you land on Rube Goldberg as the inspiration for this? So I should say the beginning was Rube Goldberg and what we've ended up with, with the installation that we have now and with a lot of the art that we've used. um, Because there's indeed an art installation right now in a two-story garage in Denver's Elyria Swansea neighborhood. Um, Yes. And uh, it's deviated from Rube Goldberg. So originally it was this idea of simplicity versus complexity. um, This idea of what it feels like for a lot of people is that you, you start and then it does a bunch of things and then the process sort of just ends up a very complex way of doing a very simple task. A bit of a black box, too. Like, what goes on inside and how was that the end result? Yes. And you're distanced from it. You kind of start it and then you watch it. Um, and they're fun and they're interesting. That was that was the main thing. It seemed like it'd be a fun thing to do. Um, but after uh, working with folks, doing the process, talking with um, with people, it's it actually, the metaphor breaks down a little bit. And so that second machine that you were referring to that represents participatory budgeting it requires people interacting with it. It's difficult. Um, you sometimes need an expert on that machine. Um, there, uh, so and you can tell in the videos the body language of of the students there. They're actually engaged and interested in it, but it's not easy. And that became that's much more of a um, maybe a, 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 a metaphor, correct for metaphor, yeah. Government budgeting, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, let's bring this from a hundred thousand feet in altitude to ten thousand feet in altitude. Are you hoping that Denver adopts participatory budgeting? Where could the rubber meet the road on this? Most definitely. Um, what the coolest thing about this has been, you know, a few of us got together with this initial idea and and we got this grant um, that we shot for. And uh, and then we got it and we we're like, whoa, all right, this has to happen. And, and there were a good number of us interested. Now it's sort of exploded. So I went to Glenarm Rec Center a couple months ago for as part of this project. And it was organized by people I don't know who welcomed me there. They didn't know me saying, do you know participatory budgeting? This is this machine has a soul. So it's spreading. It's uh, the Auraria campus is starting to do it now as part of our project. Um, people are training each other. And um, and the city, both city council and um, city uh, administrators and um, the administration, they know they know about it, and um, we most definitely want this to happen, and and I think it will. That's the thing is, it's it's happening all across the country. The more progressive cities are are doing it. And so, if the city were to decide, okay, we'll give Elyria Swansea a chunk of change, what would that just have zero strings attached, or would the city say, here are the three places you can spend it? you know, decide what your priorities are? Most likely it would be uh, the way it's done in many other places. And I imagine it would be here is they would probably want to do it um, so that it hits the city equitably. So it would go in all city council districts. Um, and I'm sure that there would, it would be um, 
it is for particular things. Um, and so uh, I know in Boston when they tried it, um, they did it through the, an office of youth development or something like that. Oh, so um, that it was actually young people having this say? Yeah. And they, the young people decided, um, the first thing that you do is decide who is eligible to take part. Okay. And they decided you can be 25 or under. So anyone over than that couldn't spend it. And it was a couple million dollars. Um, Do I want 21-year-olds making these decisions <laughs> for me about my sidewalks or something? It's a good question. But I think that that's, that's part of it is they're not alone. Um, you, If you're going to do something with a sidewalk, you need to talk with the right city agency. And I think the biggest part of this really is education. You find people who, who you know, are are mad at the city a lot. And I think that you might see, oh, the reason this costs so much is because there is a union contract or the, the, the reason this costs so much is because what you're what you want is illegal or, huh. you know, there are things that, that people want. And so I think there's an educational component to it as well. You've talked about uh, working on the Auraria campus. I think there's also a pilot project for participatory budgeting in Denver's Cole neighborhood. Yes. And out of that, there will be a decision on how to spend about $30,000 in some private money. Correct. So this is a, a soft launch in some ways. What ideas have you heard floating around in, say, the Cole neighborhood or on the Auraria campus? So both of those um, processes are underway right now. So they're doing, Cole is um, still gathering ideas as is um, Auraria. And uh, I'm, I'm not involved very much in it, to be totally honest. Um, you get to step back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And there, this is totally resident um, driven. We mentioned the art component to this. So this is just sort of the, the, the typifying aspect of, of Warm Cookies of the Revolution. It's big ideas about government mixed with that creative process, arts and crafts, mm -hmm. uh, hands-on kinds of things. You know, but art can be a gentrifying force mm -hmm. in and of itself. And I wonder if you've looked at this and said, my goodness, are we part of the very um, forces that are driving all the change in, in these neighborhoods. That's a um, the, the big part of the project and the installation that's going on right now that people can look at is um, uh, is looking at how art is used. It can be weaponized, how art can be revolutionary and, and uh, as part of liberation, and it can be very pacifying. Give us uh, some examples. Um, so one thing that a lot of folks, so in, in our installation, we have folks who um, – who live on the block where it is. We have people who live in the exact neighborhood of Swansea. We have folks who are in Globeville, Elyria, Swansea. We have people all over the, all over the city. And so um, we've had discussions about... So um, I-70 right now, yeah. underneath the viaduct, there are all these um, from... The, the city did... It's their beautiful um, street art that was put under there um, by a lot of artists I know. But some other artists and some residents have said, well... When we were younger and we did graffiti there, we'd get arrested. And also, you're making it beautiful now, but you're about to knock it down. And we don't, we, we've wanted it beautiful for a long time, and we don't want this to be knocked down. So, in that way, there's questions of, of um, who are you doing this for? Mm. Um, and uh, my, my buddy Jolt, who did a lot in this project, he calls street art uh, wallpaper for gentrification. And he's a, he's a street artist. And um, I think he sees that happen. Thanks for exploring all these big ideas with us. Thank you.
Evan Weissman is with Warm Cookies of the Revolution. It's a Denver nonprofit focused on civic health. The latest project is called This Machine Has a Soul. You can see the art installation through Monday at that garage in northwest Denver. We'll have more at CPR.org. A weekend road trip through Colorado often includes the Eisenhower Tunnel. It's actually called the Eisenhower-Johnson Memorial Tunnels. And the first of the two opened 45 years ago. And there's a lot more to this engineering marvel than meets the eye. For starters, it remains the highest vehicular traffic tunnel in the world. Lisa Schock is senior historian at the Colorado Department of Transportation. And Lisa, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. How did people cross Colorado before the tunnels? First off, I want to hear about life before them. So Colorado in the in the 20s was pretty a very rural place. Um, the state highway system was sort of laid out in the 1920s. And most of those roads were locally maintained. They weren't paved. They weren't improved by today's standards. Um, the main east-west routes were uh, what became U.S. 40 and U.S. U.S. 40 over Berthoud Pass and U.S. 6 over Loveland Pass. And in the wintertime, those were very treacherous. So it's there was this concern that the, that the state was really sort of divided during the winter months, that it was hard for people to get from east to west. And so that was sort of the early thinking around, hey, maybe we should build a tunnel through the Continental Divide. Which, as you say, is coming at around the same time the nation is planning for this, this new interstate system. Uh, indeed, talk of a major tunnel somewhere on the Continental Divide had been going on for a very long time. But what what pushed this location, this project, uh, over the edge, so to speak? Well, there are a lot of things that pushed it. Um, one of them was that um, there were some champions for the tunnel. One of them was Governor Edwin Johnson, who had been a governor in the 30s, and then he was a senator for 20 years and then came back and was a governor in the 50s. And he was really a champion of transportation and industry and the ski industry and tourism. And he really wanted there to be a tunnel that uh, connected the state. But the interstate highway highway system, as you had mentioned earlier, was another big catalyst. Um, There were actually a number of highway acts, uh, interstate highway acts starting in the 40s when uh, Franklin Roosevelt was in office. It wasn't until 1956 that that the the Interstate Highway Act was actually f- had funding associated with it. And, and why this location, though? Well, so there were a bunch of locations that were evaluated, um, but this location was on the old US-6 um, alignment, so there was already some some connection there over Loveland Pass. And there were a bunch of studies that were done to evaluate this location. There were people who wanted Berthoud Pass to be the location of the tunnel and other people who thought Loveland Pass would be better. But this one made more sense um, because of where it was located along US-6. Okay. And as you note, uh, the Johnson Tunnel is not named for President Johnson. It is named for that former Colorado governor, Edwin C. Johnson. What were some of the challenges that miners faced when they started boring the tunnel in that chosen location? There were a lot of challenges. First of all, there's the altitude. The tunnel is at 11,000 feet. Um, another another big concern was the geology itself. Um, the Continental Divide in that location is mostly granite, which is very hard rock. But there was also um, the Loveland Fault. There's a fault zone along there. Oh, gosh. 
yeah, don't it's it's okay. It's, okay. <laughs> don't worry about the tunnel. Um but and there there's also some um concerns with water drainage and water that made some of the the rock kind of soft. So construction or mining of the tunnel was really challenging because of those things. So when I drive through the tunnels, I I think about what is beyond like those doors and, you know, just outside of that envelope where my car is. Uh, I understand that, that part of what's there is a massive ventilation system. Yeah, because of the altitude um, of the tunnel, they had to build a, a huge ventilation system to keep the air circulating through the tunnel. Um, and so that was that was a kind of a, a whole separate challenge um, to to constructing the tunnel and up above, you know, where you see that sort of antiseptic um, uh, tiled interior yeah. of the tunnel. There's the the tunnel heading, and then the, at each end of the tunnel, there's a, a big ventilation system that keeps things, you know, keeps the air um, at at a much cleaner. Um, condition than it would be if there was no ventilation system. Mm. Uh, remind me how long the tunnels are. Tunnels are about 1.6 miles long. And um, I was just looking at some fun facts because I don't have those readily available in my head. But my understanding is that the electric bill is $70,000 a month at the tunnel. So there's a lot of... Mm. Keeping um, the lights on is not a cheap Keeping the lights endeavor. on is not cheap. So uh, the people behind the tunnel's construction were pioneers in a sense because nothing like this had ever really been built before. Uh, there was also a social justice pioneer connected yes. to the tunnel. Tell us about Janet. Is it Bonima? It's it's Bonima. Bonima. Okay. Tell me about, about So Janet tunnel. was uh, in her early 30s. She had was a graduate of CU. She was a pilot. She rode motorcycles. She was on the ski team. All things that in the early 70s were sort of not considered to be something that most women would be interested in. So she was um, um, had applied for a job with um, the Department of Highways in 1970 to be an engineering tech. She actually had a history degree, but she did apply for an engineering tech job and was accepted. And when she showed up for work and they found out she was a woman, they wouldn't allow her to work at the tunnel. Um, apparently, there was a clerical error and her name was – written down as James instead of Janet. I see. And so um, she was not allowed to work in the tunnel. There's this myth that women working in um, in mines is bad luck and that there could be something catastrophic that could happen if a woman entered a, a mining um, situation or a mining tunnel. This, so This was just superstition? It was superstition. But, but a lot sure. of Yeah. So – so she ended up filing a sexual discrimination lawsuit, which was settled, and it, and did actually show up for work at the tunnel. And the story is that 60 men walked off the job and would refuse to work there because there was a woman in the tunnel, based on this old mining myth. Wow. Oh, she was recently inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame, I understand. Yes, she was. So what impact did the tunnels – and again, the, there was the, the one built at a time – Yes. And I think that the second tunnel, the Johnson Tunnel, came several years later. What impact did these tunnels have on Colorado, the country? So from a, a transportation perspective, these are sort of the tunnels connected the state. This was one of the things that Governor Love brought up in his uh, speech when they opened the Eisenhower bore in 1973. 
he said that the the tunnels would would connect east and west. So there's that sort of connection within the state. But I also think that the tunnel sort of put Colorado on the map. I mean, initially, the interstate system was supposed to end in Denver. It was not supposed to connect through the mountains to Utah. And there was a lot of political pushing by Edwin C. Johnson and and Senator um, Eugene Milliken to make sure that 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 western connection through the the mountains uh, for the interstate was completed. So very briefly, I think a, a lot of people associate the tunnels with not just being the gateway to the mountains and skiing, but as an entryway to traffic headaches as well. Yeah. Do, do you think that planners back then? still thought that it would essentially be the major east-west thoroughfare 50 years later, largely as it is today and, and was then. You know, I, I don't I don't know if planners were thinking about that. I do know that we, the, the agency, the Department of Highways and now CDOT, really documented that tunnel like I've never seen anything documented. There are boxes and boxes of photos and plans and drawings um, actually housed at the tunnel. We've had that collection inventoried. My sense is that there was some vision that this would be the biggest project that, that the Department of Highways ever built. And I, and my assumption also is that the planners were thinking, when we build this, this is going to be, this is going to be something that can carry through um, and connect the state through the future. And I don't think anybody was thinking that there would be the congestion there is now on mm. that same route. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Lisa Schock, senior historian at CDOT, speaking with me in January about the Eisenhower-Johnson Memorial Tunnels. The first of the tunnels opened 45 years ago. Thanks for spending time with us. Lovely to spend another week with you. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.